0: Welcome to On the Docket with the National Drug Court Resource Center. I'm your host, Nicholas Bills. The National Drug Court Resource Center, also known as NDCRC, is housed in the Justice Programs Office, a center in the School of Public Affairs at American University. JPO provides research, technical assistance, training, program evaluation, and capacity building services to jurisdictions, organizations, and government agencies throughout the United States and internationally. The National Drug Court Resource Center is part of the Bureau of Justice Assistance at the U.S. Department of Justice's Drug Court Initiative. NDCRC is the go-to place for treatment court practitioners to access a wide variety of resources to make their programs as effective as possible. The ideas and thoughts expressed in this podcast do not directly reflect those of JPO, American University, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, or the Department of Justice. In this three-part podcast series titled Color in the Court, Exploring the racial and ethnic disparities in treatment courts, we will talk with guests who are experts on racial and ethnic disparities in the wider criminal justice system and in treatment courts. We'll discuss solutions to address racial and ethnic disparities in courts, and we'll hear from a criminal justice team in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, who implemented plans and strategies to make their treatment courts more racially and ethnically equitable. Today's episode will focus on how racial and ethnic disparities have been created and perpetuated in the criminal justice system, including in treatment courts. There is a plethora of research that states people of color are more likely to be arrested, remanded into custody, and given harsher sentences compared to their white counterparts. This differential treatment leads to racial and ethnic disparities in the criminal justice system. We're now joined by Professor Angela Davis from American University's Washington College of Law. Professor Davis studies criminal law and procedure with a focus on prosecutorial power and racism in the criminal justice system. Professor Davis, thank you so much for joining us today. So let's get right to the fundamentals. How do you define racial and ethnic disparity?
1: Well, uh, racial and ethnic disparity, specifically in the criminal justice system, which is which is where I examine it, I would define that as similarly situated people in the criminal justice system being treated differently based on race or ethnicity and by similarly situated i mean people who for example a defendant who is a black or brown defendant who's alleged to have engaged in the same behavior as a white defendant but is treated differently may have the same criminal record or lack thereof but is treated differently than his or her white counterpart and these dissimilar treatments occur at every step of the process From arrest through sentencing. So police officers, for example, who target black and brown communities for surveillance. Police officers who stop and search black and brown people while ignoring whites who are engaged in the same behavior prosecutors who charge black and brown individuals while not charging whites who are engaged in the same behavior or who charge black and brown individuals more harshly than whites, judges who meet out harsher sentences for black and brown defendants, sentencing laws that tend to affect black and brown people more than white. At every step of the process, we find these unwarranted, unfair racial and ethnic disparities in the criminal justice system. And I should say, not just for defendants, but victims as well. Numerous studies showing that black and brown victims receive less favorable treatment in the criminal justice system than white. So this problem of race Racial disparities in the criminal justice system is a serious and persistent problem, has been for some time, and continues to be.
0: What has been the impact of the war on drugs on racial and ethnic disparities in the criminal justice system?
1: So, you know, the war on drugs, which occurred some time ago and really does continue in some form today, you know, first of all, really harsh sentencing laws passed on both the state and federal level, and sort of a mandate really to law enforcement to to go out and arrest our way out of what is really most most believed to be a public health problem. And so we have police departments targeting primarily African-American communities, and with time, both African-American and Latino communities. And so even though statistics show that African-Americans do not use drugs in any greater quantity than whites, that's where law enforcement has focused, that is, on black and brown communities. And so we had police officers really just going out into those communities, stopping and searching African-Americans. And the majority, by the way, of people that they stopped and searched, they did not find drugs on. So most recently, there was a case in New York. There was actually a lawsuit filed in, in New York by the Center for Constitutional Rights called Floyd versus New York, where it was alleged that police officers there were specifically targeting black and brown, particularly young men, stopping and searching them without the required reasonable suspicion that the Supreme Court requires they have, and that the vast majority, like close to 98% of the people they stopped and searched, had nothing on them. So, you know, it was not even an effective strategy from their point of view. The court actually found that not only did they violate the Fourth Amendment by stopping these people without reasonable suspicion, But they also violated the 14th Amendment because they were discriminating based on race. And so, you know, the war on drugs, yeah, that significantly contributed to the racial disparities that we have in the criminal justice system. Because, of course, if you're just targeting African-Americans, even though the return rate from the statistics I just cited for you from New York was low, you're still going to end up with more African, if you're only stopping and searching African Americans, then that's who you're going to end up prosecuting. That's who's going to end up in our prisons and jails. And so it's been an unfair, unjust system. And certainly the war on drugs really contributed to a lot to the racial disparities that we see in our system today. Although it's not just with drug offenses, but certainly the war on drugs was really significantly contributed to these disparities. And and I should add, if the trends continue, according to the Sentencing Project, one of every three Black American males born today can expect to go to prison in his lifetime, as can one of every six Latino males, compared to one in every seventeen white males. So those statistics show you just how stark the problem is.
0: Yeah, it can't get much more can't get much more demonstrative than that. Professor Davis, thank you so much for coming by and uh, providing your your insight and providing the crucial context upon which all of the future episodes of the podcast will be built.
1: Sure, my pleasure.
0: In the late 1980s, there was the introduction of the first treatment court. At the time, part of the argument was that treatment courts could reduce racial and ethnic disparities. Unfortunately, treatment courts have also experienced racial and ethnic disparities in program outcomes where, for example, minorities graduate programs at a lesser rate than their white counterparts. To help us unpack this occurrence, we're now joined by Dr. Dannerbeck Yanku. So let's get down to the very beginning. And just define, what is a treatment court?
2: Sure. Well, a treatment court, really, it reflects an umbrella of what's been also called problem-solving courts, which, as you mentioned, began in the late 1980s with drug treatment courts. There was a recognition that you can't keep putting people in prison and punishing them when they have a substance use disorder. And so drug courts were started. And over the years, as the model has become more widespread and adopted, it was recognized there's other kind of problems that also could be put under this umbrella. Things like domestic violence, prostitution, mental health issues that are for people involved in the
1: justice system.
2: But in essence, a treatment court is a court program that includes a number of components. It includes a, a team of staff, professional staff, a judge, probation officer, treatment provider, and others who work with individuals involved in the justice system because they have a substance use disorder that is part of their offending behavior. And there's usually special dockets where a group of individuals who are all going through the program appear before the judge, and they're held accountable for their actions They're mandated to go into treatment while they're in the program, which can involve both group treatment interventions, individual counseling sessions. It can include some evidence-based programs to address criminal thinking behavior as well as other aspects of their substance use disorder. And also, many times, these individuals who are in this kind of a program have other problems in their life that make it hard for them to function well in society. For example, they may have a low level of education. They may have had very few employment experiences. So while they're in the treatment court, they also get support and assistance for other kinds of needs that they may have. And a typical program lasts about 18 months. It starts out very intense where practically every day of the week you're going in to get some kind of a service. You're also being monitored for substance use through what they call urine analysis testing that happens about three times a week. And then you report to the judge at this special, during a special docket, and the team's there to support you and also hold you accountable for your behavior. So, for example, if over the last week you've had evidence that you've been using, the judge may give you sanctions such as jail time or some kind of other response to your behavior. It's all very much behavioral response-based with both incentives and sanctions. And if you're doing well, doing complying with all the program requirements, they start to ease back on the amount of time you have to be involved in treatment sessions, going to court and such, until eventually they you've demonstrated that you can maintain your sobriety once you leave the program. And that you're on a pathway to being successful out in society. And then you graduate.
0: The National Association of Drug Court Professionals, or the NADCP, best practice standards has a section on equality and inclusion. And the standard recognizes that there are groups who have historically experienced discrimination due to race or sex, religion or other characteristics. And as a result... Treatment courts should ensure that their programs are responsive to differences within the populations served. In addition, in 2010, NADCP's board of directors charged the membership to examine their programs and determine if racial and ethnic disparities are present. So with all of that being said, why is it important for treatment courts to be concerned with equity and inclusion?
2: It begins with a look at the justice system and who's being put in jail or prison. And I know some statistics indicated that. An African American child born in, I think it was the mid 2010s, had about a one in three chance, one in four chance of being incarcerated or at least under justice system supervision at some point in their life. And treatment courts were designed to be a diversion program to keep people out of prison or jail. And what has happened over time is they've been, while they've been very successful, it's often been with The success has been experienced with white males who get into the programs at higher rates and who then, when they're in the programs, tend to successfully complete them at higher rates. And for a long time, no one was looking at this. There's still a lot of programs around the country. And if you ask them, well, is there a difference between African-American and Caucasian and maybe Hispanic graduation rates, they'll say, we don't know. We don't track that data. And so the first thing that courts are learning to do is to start to actually track data based on race and ethnicity on their populations to see who's getting in their programs compared to who's going to jail or prison among people who might be eligible for the program and then and then how are they doing once they get in the program. Originally the this initiative was designed to raise awareness, but then also to hold courts accountable When they became aware, there were differences in who was getting in and, and who made it through. And so that's where it starts, this recognition that the intent of the program was to divert people from jail or prison, but that, in fact, what's been shown through statistics is that it's a differential experience based on race and ethnicity, to recognize not only the race and ethnicity of people, but we're also, as our society gets more diverse, and we're starting to ask more questions about things like sexual identity, gender identity, other characteristics. So we're starting to do that now with other groups, too.
0: So speaking of your experience uh, with collecting information, in the late 90s, you conducted research on treatment courts in Missouri, which revealed that treatment court participants had lower recidivism rates than individuals under traditional community supervision. But later you re-examined the data and notice that there are some racial and ethnic disparities. Uh, Ethnic minorities were graduating from the program at a lesser rate than white folks. In this instance, why was there a lower graduation rate for people of color?
2: Well, you know, once again, we know what we know because we collect data on it. And in that study that we did in the late 90s, we went through paper files of literally thousands of individuals who'd been through Missouri's treatment courts and, and extracted information that's not normally collected in, now in, in a lot of administrative databases. So we could identify things like community socioeconomic status, that is, the context in which someone lived. And we found that that helped explain why there was a difference between races, because people of color tended to live in communities and uh, neighborhoods of lower socioeconomic status. We also found that it's very common across multiple studies now showing that education and or employment makes a difference in who graduates and who doesn't. That if you have a higher level of education, and in particular, if you have more of an employment experience, that you're more likely to graduate from a treatment court. So those were, and then also being male was another factor. But in terms of lower graduation rates for people of color, there's probably other things that have never really been looked at too much in administrative data sets that are commonly collected by the court. The things we're starting to recognize now are historical trauma, which for a long time wasn't being addressed in treatment court programs. And so people weren't doing as well. Or another requirement in the past has been knowing that in Employment will help you do better in the program. The structure of your life, when you have a job, the kind of status that brings you other things, it would be important to make sure that participants had a job. Well, what was often happening, especially for African-Americans in their neighborhoods, the kind of jobs they could get were in fast food. So, they, they, that was not a very appealing kind of job, frankly, over the long term. And so, it's being recognized now that we need to do more to help bridge over to a, some kind of career pathway for people from the very start of the program to give them some hope in it, to help them overcome some of the historical challenges that they face being a person of color. Another factor that's associated with the lower graduation rates for people of color is age. A lot of the African American participants, especially the men, tended to be what we would call emerging adults, 17 to 25 years old. And that's a group that's historically really hard to engage and retain in any kind of a treatment program. They're, just, they're at a point in their life where their brains are not fully developed. They don't necessarily have a long term view of the benefits of following a different pathway. And so it's been hard to engage and retain them. And that's something, and that lower age group has also had lower graduation rates, and you see a lot of African-Americans in that group.
0: All right. Well, thanks again for coming by, and good luck with all of your with all of your future endeavors.
2: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking to you today. I appreciate the attention to the issue.
0: Now, Professor Gallagher, you've been a partner with the Justice Programs Office for the past several years, and we are grateful for your contributions as an RED Program Assessment Tool Working Committee member. Now, you've conducted research on racial and ethnic disparity in treatment courts and have written several papers on the topic. Can you briefly describe differences in the way people of color are treated in the treatment courts compared to their white counterparts?
3: Yes, Nicholas, I'd I'd be happy to. And I'd like to thank you and American University for having me on the podcast. The title of this article is Comparing and Contrasting White and African-American participants lived experiences in drug court. It was published in the Journal of Ethnicity and Criminal Justice. And as suggested in the title, we compared and contrasted white participants and African-American participants' thoughts, opinions, and experiences in drug court. To get to the answer to your question about the differences, there were some noticeable differences between the two populations. First, white participants The two themes to emerge from their data, their experiences, were time management, and then the second theme was titled total abstinence. White participants reported difficulties and challenges with time management in drug court. Specifically, they talked about it was difficult to manage all the responsibilities of drug court with the many other responsibilities they have in their life. Logically, it makes sense if someone's drug testing two to three times a week, they have to do a status hearing with the judge weekly, maybe go to treatment one to three times a week. That can be difficult to balance all of the drug court or treatment court requirements with their life, employment, family life, etc. So that was one finding that was specific to white participants. Now, in no way would we say that that would not be applicable to other races and ethnicities. I think time management is probably a challenge for all participants, but that was one of the most significant themes and comments that white participants made. And then the other theme that was unique to white participants, we titled total abstinence. And this was interesting because we know that, again, in some drug courts and some treatment courts, it's not universal, that white participants tend to have better outcomes related to graduation than, say, their African-American counterparts. But these participants in this study reported that they were abstaining from their drug of choice, but were still using alcohol. And this was the majority of white participants reported still using alcohol while in drug court. Now, when we compare that to African-American participants, The two themes that they have were not even related to the drug court, they were specific to the quality of addiction counseling that they received. So the first theme was individualized treatment needs were not being met and this is again from African-American participants' experiences, the majority of African-American participants were dissatisfied with the quality of addiction counseling they received. And they felt that because of the strong focus on Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous in treatment, they were not able to address some of the issues that may have been associated with their drug use. So in comparing and contrasting white and African-American participants' experiences in drug court in this particular study. White participants were more focused on drug court programming, issues related to time management, and then they were very candid and honest about their use of alcohol in the program. They saw it as non-problematic, the use of alcohol for the most part, but it is non-compliant with the drug court model. African-American participants had favorable views towards the drug court program. Their biggest critiques were related to the quality of treatment they received for their substance use disorders, specifically not receiving individualized treatment. They thought their treatment was too heavily focused on Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous norms, and consistently throughout the individual interviews, African-American participants reported they felt that they were coerced into labeling themselves an addict or alcoholic. We labeled that as culturally incompetent labeling. They saw that as not valuable. They saw it as stigmatizing and labeling. And they were dissatisfied with that expectation and that norm in addiction counseling.
0: You have some more quotes from African-Americans.
3: Yes, I have uh, several quotes I'd like to share with you. So the quote that I'd like to share with you is having frequent contact with the judge. Quote, the judge is what motivates me to graduate. She really cares about me and my children. This is not what I expected from a judge. I did not expect for her to get to know me on a personal level. I look forward to seeing her each week and sharing all the good stuff I'm doing with my life now. She is so caring and kind, and people like me who are suffering from addictions need someone like her to motivate us and tell us that we can do it because she did it herself, end of quote. And this one quote, which is obviously very powerful. I mean, this is an African-American man or woman in the criminal justice system speaking so favorably about a criminal justice professional, a judge. And this is consistent with the drug court and the treatment court model, treating participants with compassion, understanding and respect and approaching their treatment in a non-adversarial manner. The second and third themes, though, are related to the critiques of the substance abuse counselors or the agencies where they get addiction counseling. And this goes back, there's a trend, again, in my research, where African-American participants have wonderful things to say about drug court and programming. Their biggest critiques are about counseling. The second theme is an uneasy relationship exists between African-Americans and treatment providers. And I'll read a quote for you to conceptualize this theme. Quote, I relapsed once while in drug court, but the judge didn't know about it because they didn't pick it up on the drop, urine drug screen. But it wasn't something I wanted to do, so I discussed it in group. Our counselors always talk about being honest, and honesty is the key to recovery and nonsense like that. So I went to group, was honest about my relapse, and then the counselor called my case manager, snitched on me, and I went to jail. Honesty is not part of my recovery, and I can speak for all of us. All we do is lie to the counselors and tell them what they want to hear because no one wants to go to jail, end of quote. This topic, I think, is really important and something we need to start having a discussion on in the treatment court world. It's something we need to start talking about at webinars and trainings and conferences, the sharing of information. And this participant talked about going to group, an addiction counseling group, and being open and honest about his or her relapse on a particular drug. And then the counselor called the drug court, perhaps the case manager, judge, probation officer, and shared that information with them. This theme Is unique to African American participants. And when I say it's unique to them, of course, this challenge can be for any race and ethnicities that treatment courts serve. It is unique in my research that white participants have not consistently shared this as a problem. In the treatment court model, drug courts in particular, there seems to be an over reliance on mandating requiring participants to attend AA or NA meetings. And My research has found that that is not best practices, particularly in serving African American participants, because African American participants said, we need a recovery support system. Sometimes we find little value in AA or NA meetings, but we find tremendous value in natural supports in our life. Here's the key. The men and women that I work with in addiction counseling, I encourage them to go to a meeting, and determine for themselves if that will be part of their support system as compared to me saying, you must go. Even in the criminal justice system, those that are court-ordered or not court-ordered to treatment, always. The men and women that I treat in addiction counseling, they are the experts of their own life, not me. I may have suggestions. I will support them in their path to recovery. They are the expert of their own life. They know what is best for them. This quote is from an African American participant in a Texas drug court. Quote In my culture, you don't talk about your personal problems in public. At these AA and NA meetings, these people are talking about how they were abused as a child and how they tried to kill themselves. I can't relate. I have problems, but I don't share them there. I share them with my family. End of quote. You can see in this quote, This African-American man or woman in the Texas drug court talked openly and directly about, in my culture, we don't, as they say, air our dirty laundry in public. Now, in no way would we generalize that back to all African-Americans. Of course not. We wouldn't. We do generalize it back to the African-Americans in my studies. We can generalize the findings back to African-Americans in the research that I have done, not as African-Americans as a whole.
0: All right, Dr. Gallagher, so you are in Indiana. And the Indiana treatment courts conduct mandatory program evaluation every few years. So uh, in your research, when the evaluations have identified racial and ethnic disparities in treatment courts, what are some of the solutions that courts have implemented to make their programs more equitable?
3: They should complete program evaluations on a regular basis,
0: utilize the RED
3: program assessment tool offered through American University, not mandate alcoholics anonymous or narcotics anonymous meetings yet encourage the use of a natural recovery support system refer participants to treatment providers who are truly doing evidence-based interventions and can prove that claim they're doing culturally informed interventions such as Oakland the community mental health center in my community we have a group is a specialized group for african americans who have experienced trauma and also have substance use disorders to provide individualized treatment. And that comes from the lens of saying the clients are the experts of their own lives. Always, even if they're involved in the criminal justice system, they are the experts of their own lives, not us. And we want to hear their views on recovery support systems. And then the last recommendation is to invite employers to join the treatment court team. Research has shown I have seen success firsthand in my community, that these five interventions are key in addressing racial disparities and outcomes and in best serving racial and ethnic minorities in treatment courts.
0: Dr. Gallagher, thank you so much for your time and for sharing all the fruits of your your research uh, and endeavors. And uh, good luck in all all of your future endeavors as well, all of your future research. It sounds like you have a long road ahead of you, and we all appreciate you taking the time to walk that road and take us along the path with you.
3: You're very welcome, and thank you. This was a great time, great conversation.
0: We've heard from the experts in the field of racial and ethnic disparity, specifically within treatment courts. It's clear from their answers that the existence of racial and ethnic disparity in both the criminal justice system at large and treatment courts is an undeniable barrier to equitable outcomes for all who are justice-involved in the United States. With the scene set of how and why racial and ethnic disparities occur and an understanding of the effects that these disparities have on participants in treatment courts, our next episode will focus on solutions to address racial and ethnic disparities in the treatment courts. To learn more about the Racial and Ethnic Disparities Tool, visit redtool.org. You can also visit the Justice Programs Office website at www.american.edu spa jpo. To learn more about the National Drug Court Resource Center, visit www.ndcrc.org.